0: Tonight's guest is a composer whose work is often influenced by literature. Among my personal favorites are Quendi, based on Tolkien's universe, and The Violin Concerto, based on H.P. Lovecraft. He has recently started his PhD on the Aesthetical Paradigm Shift prior to World War I. And he adamantly believes that music can tell a story and that it can affect catharsis on its listeners. Martin Romberg, welcome to the Cave of Pellis. Thank you. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is that I know that you are concerned with the cultural historical occurrences uh, simultaneous with and uh, and catalyzing modernism in art and culture. And uh, also I wanted to talk to you about how is it possible that music can tell a story? And of course, I'd like to hear what is the situation for composers in today's cultural climate. But before we get to that, I think it's fair to let the viewers get to know who you are. So tell us, how do you get to educate yourself and learn the craft as a composer today?
1: Well, you do have several possibilities. Um, the important thing is, of course, to have an take a proper education Um, I choose a conservative education well it was conservative slash modern Mm. in several ways so I was lucky in the sense it was in Vienna in the University of Vienna and um, Austria in Austria yes and you might call it conservative Uh, you know you have the the basic tools for understanding uh, western music history of the previous centuries that's what uh, a composer studies, he basically studies older music, how it was done, mm. and he writes uh, music in that style to understand how it was done. And then you work your way up through the centuries until the point where the professors uh, say yes or no, this is Arta or not. <laughs> so some would say that it ends with Schumann, others would say it ends with Boulez, others would say it doesn't end at all. So you have a lot of different worldviews in that uh,
0: scope, you're describing now what you were taught in. The, in yes, the yes, yes. So, so,
1: uh, so I had a, a very broad education, but mm-hmm. um, the thing that rests in my mind uh, was definitely technique. Strangely enough, um, I work a lot with orchestras. I I like working with orchestras. It's very, it's a very special form of um, of thinking music. I mean, as a composer, you have different choices. So, um, traditionally, composers choose whether to be opera composers or symphonic composers or chamber music composers mm. and the reason why is a combination of several things it can has to do with your personality your your personal the character of your voice or it can be circumstances mm. right if you live in in in, in relative poverty like Schubert you you would see that there is not many symphony orchestras available to you so Mm -hmm. you would obviously write a lot of chamber music because you have friends and musicians around you in a small circle that could actually execute their music so the the historical and personal circumstances are certainly very important for that as well.
0: Yeah because I I really wanted to hear how that is Um, you know, when I meet different uh, figurative painters, I hear the stories that they ha- that uh, they experience, uh, you know, getting educated or you know, at best. I <laughs> mean, a lot of them can go to these institutions and and uh, you know, get quite hard pushback. Yes. So, tell us a bit about what you actually learned at the. I guess it was the academy uh, yes. in in Vienna. What yes. they actually taught you? Because <laughs> well, you it, know- it, it, to me it sounds. Uh, strange that you go to an academy and you actually learn the craft. <laughs> That's It's, not, uh, it's yes. not how it is in within painting, so, so tell us about that.
1: Yes, it, it is a lot of disagreements. Of course you have um, what you can call a common truth, which might be spoken out in public, but once you learn to know people privately yeah. and as a music student you have the luxury often. That's why music students are the most expensive students to have in society. It's that you have um, four eyes uh, lessons with your, with your professor and really? then you will you will find out what oh. he really means about things uh-huh. and then you will have a multitude obviously of aesthetics and choices and points of view that that person might not express in public right really? so that, that's quite special with music education oh. right right you know it, it's not a colloquium when you, you learn to play the piano yeah. you sit there and you have this one person sitting here next to you and correcting you and it's the same thing with for example instrumentation we we, we have a two students, one professor, and he, you know it it's a very intimate form of 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 uh, transmission so yeah. uh, so actually there is a class of civ- uh, cla- uh, clash of civilizations on a on a microscopic level in music education, mm-hmm. uh, especially in Vienna mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons I think but the art of orchestration uh, was. Certainly uh, the most thorough and qualified and uh, conscientious um, courses I had. And that has remained with me. Because in orchestration you have so many things coming together. Logic, emotionality, history, technique, acoustics. All that comes together.
0: Right, so there are certain things you simply need to know if you're supposed to be a composer, (laughs) no matter what you're composing. Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Well, in my view, Yeah. No,
0: well, the reason is, um, I'm trying to understand where the similarities or differences are. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I say, within, I mean, if you go to an art academy, a painting, you know, art academy, you will will most probably not find any uh, uh, class for figurative painting. And I think that's something we'll, we'll also uh, talk a little bit uh, about today. If there's some, what are the similarities or differences between so? Total music would you say and, uh,
1: that in an art academy, I, I'm posing you the questions, mm. back, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, So, uh, wouldn't uh, so you don't have the um, historical walkthrough, for example, of if you study Renaissance painting, then you study Baroque, then you study Classicism and Romanticism, and so on. But no. a music education would be to study each of the period and try to paint in each of the period mm. to have a, a sort of a historical qualification that would be the mm. classical mm. music mm. education
0: because mm. I, I think that this is also the, a major point that we'll be, be talking about in painting because uh, it is i painting it's not me and a lot of musicians who shall execute what yeah. i've made or so yeah. or, or or composed uh it's me yeah. expressing myself yeah. so uh, that is part of wha- how why uh, the craft deteriorated much much quicker, or in a d- completely different right. way than within right. within uh, right. music.
1: There has been this tendency also in the twentieth century um, because of sub- subjectivism, because of expressionism, because of uh, uh, of complete subjective realities. Mm. Um, and there has been composers, of course, that said that what I write is more important than what the musician can actually play. Mm. And that might be legitimate or not. But um, there has been such a tendency to try to challenge. Because musicians as well, they they get used to things. They play all the the same things up and down and Mm. and, the same things all over again. So it might be legitimate to to try to challenge someone, but you have to do it in a good way and a qualified way. And if Mm. you want to challenge someone, you need to understand perfectly uh, where he comes from. Mm. If you don't know the, the basic technique of someone, you can't challenge him. Mm. Because, because, you know, you know how to, where do you want to get him, you know, mm. that's the important thing.
0: And there's also, there's also the thing where if, if you can compare the so-called atonal music and abstract painting, mm. if you are to perform uh, atonal music, if a violinist is uh, to do that, he still needs to know quite a lot about actually playing the violin. Yes. So that there's a different level of, of uh, ha- you having to know that's the technique. True. That's know. true, that's yeah. true. And
1: yeah. you can say that in music for a, a very uh, small group of musicians, but but still, aton um, and music has become uh, another level of technique that uh, that can be mastered or not. You, you can cheat or you, you don't cheat. S- some cheat and some don't. Uh, and some people hear it, some composer hear it, some, some composers don't hear it. Mm. But um, there is definitely serious people in there that actually does that. So the problem for the audience would be that uh, very often they couldn't really have the difference. Mm. So if, if somebody is actually performing a very, very complex piece perfectly, or if it doesn't perf- perform it perfectly, the audience will not be qualified to, uh, to know mm. the difference between the two. And that's, of course, a, a cultural problem. Uh, which uh, a lot of people thought would change over the decades over the, and the centuries, because uh, we have had etonal music for a hundred years, uh, but it hasn't. So that remains a challenge.
0: They thought what would change?
1: Uh, the level of perception in the general audience. Then so that, that they got used to etonality. Of course, yeah. and, uh, that but that, that's a part of the, the modernist optimism That's right. That everything gets, we always get smarter, right? And we always get better, (laughs) yeah. And we always get higher. It's an aspiration for something higher, and that's that's very noble, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, well, it uh, it sounds good. So, how did that play out in your education? When you, I mean, you composed your own works while studying, I presume. Yes. And and what were the discussions with the professors there in terms of, uh, you know, we have this. Even though nude painting or so is not taught in a real art academy, uh, you have the idea that well you have to know how to draw first yes. before you can move on. You know yes. this old cliche. Uh, so you study these older techniques, mm-hmm. but when it comes to art time, is it a different game then, or would they accept that you wanted to compose tonal? Well, t- to be honest, tonal
1: music? to be honest, no. So I had to find my own way with this. Um, they did not so accept it. No, uh, but that doesn't matter um, mm. because you shouldn't seek acceptance from your teacher. No, no, that's a bad least. thing to do. Yeah. And but uh, so I, I, I composed fairly modern music when I left the music academy. But I yeah. already knew that this is not going to be my way for a lot of reasons. Um, I had a problem with this music's position in society as a whole. I, I saw the smallness of it. I had a problem with, um, with the, the truthfulness of some, some things when you write something very conscientious, very precise, uh, and a musician will not execute it because he is not paid enough, or he doesn't have the, the skills to actually play it, and you play something, and somebody comes up to you after the concert and says, what a wonderful music you've written, and mm. the musician hasn't actually played what you actually wrote in the score. Mm. I had a couple of those experiences, and and that was enough for me to say, uh, no, this is not the way. Mm. So I'm going to go back several steps. I'm not going to try to master the old way of doing it. And I'm going to see where that takes me from there. Mm. And that uh, happened after my studies. Really? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So then we get to what you what you actually did compose yeah. after uh, after your studies. Yes. And... Yes. <clears throat> uh, uh, well, maybe first we could talk a little bit about how you think when you compose. If you are interested in saying anything about that, before we start uh, talking a little bit about some of your works, and, and uh, move on.
1: How I compose concretely? Yeah, yeah. Yes. How you think? Well, I definitely need a source of inspiration. Yeah. Which is outer musical, which is out of music. Yeah. Uh, it could be literature. It could be art. It could be a story. And um, I'm working with that now. I mean, I've been in the game for ten years, so I'm, I'm not I'm fairly young. I have a long way to go and all. Um, and I, I, I see that my best compositions are those that are inspired by the best stories. Yeah. So if you yeah, if right. you if you write a composition about something that is not that interesting, right. unfortunately your music and I just discovered this, uh, your music is not connected that interesting either. Yeah. So the more energy and power is in the original concepts. So, for example, Quendi, which you speak about, which yeah. I know is a very good composition, because the, the because th- that background story, which is a, a creation story, it's a, it's a quasi-mythological creation story from from, from Tolkien's um, original lore. Nobody knows about this, you know. No, everybody knows the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but very, very few right. people have read the, the Silmarillion, and know that this person, Tolkien, he actually invented myth- mythic worlds, and he did it. Extremely thoroughly. I mean, he wrote languages, grammars, invented gods and and concepts and and concepts of time, and uh, he called that sub creation. Mm. And uh, he he was a sort of a Catholic believer. So for Tolkien, the artist is somebody that that recreates, right? So for him, uh, the mythical language. Which is very much in resonance with with Campbell, with Jung, with that line of thought, with that uh, tradition of thought, um, was a a basic material to do literature, and uh, that was quite new, you know, to use um, a myth as a basic fundament to create literature was sort of sort of not done before, right? Lovecraft did it a little bit as well, Mm -hmm. not so thoroughly, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that it it completely dissonates with. What a scientific, what what an um, uh, archaeologist or uh, or historian would say. What is mythology? I mean, mythology is a is a common set of stories developed by an entire culture. Yeah. Of, course, of course, there was always one person writing mythology, right? Even the Greek mythology was always one person. We don't know who it was, but eventually, with time, we we think that um, it, it's a result of a of a whole culture. But was it? Was it really, you know, mm. what will they say in 400 years about Batman, you know, when we don't know who actually wrote it? We wouldn't know what's DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, yeah. they would only see this character. They would, they would find a couple of, of, of plastic, you know, and a couple of, uh, uh, of comic strips and said, OK, so this was a mythic figure from the 20th century. Right. And who wrote it doesn't matter because that was obviously a symbol of their culture. Right? Mm. Um, so there is a lot of lot of energy in that so in in mythic material there is much energy and in new written mythic material there is even more energy for me
0: Um, and i discovered this so when you uh, read literature then Hmm. is there, there an image that sort of sticks in your head certain scenes that that uh, that uh, stick with you that are in so-called inspiring
1: yes the beauty of the scenes mm. is important mm. of course and there must be some voice coming out of them oh. right
0: so, you're so for
1: example it's the simplicity with if you take that work quendi that you know this it's a story about the first elves uh-huh. and they're created by by god you yeah. And they wake up, there are um, four couples or two couples of elves, I can't remember, but uh, four initial couples of elves, and they just wake up under a, a, a dark um, starlit sky. And um, they start, uh, everything is dark, so they start call out to each other, mm. right, in darkness, because the sun isn't created yet, and the moon is not created yet. Um, so already there in that image, you have you have music, right? Because mm-hmm. you have this right. this character wake yeah. up in the darkness, and yeah. they call out to each other. Right. right, right? right. So all there there is something singing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have all these images, you know, that, yeah. which of course you don't have, but you will get others. So that's the interesting thing I notice as a composer yeah. when I, I write works and people come up to me and say, Oh my God, how did you how did you imagine this uh, burning village? Yeah. I, I said, What burning village? It's, <laughs> about something completely different but that person had an image of 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 her or his own and if i wouldn't have my theory is that if i wouldn't have written music that was based on an image he wouldn't have had an image at all perhaps um
0: so it's a strange thing Um, but how about the violin concerto Mm -hmm. because that that was really uh, i mean these two works uh, there are the other we could talk about too, but these two works really stand out from what I've heard of, your, of uh, your compositions. Right, right,
1: because they are simple works, I believe. They're simple. Yes, and the background energy is good, is mm-hmm. is very strong. Um, so the violin concerto is, is uh, it's a sort of a strange thing because um, H. P. Lovecraft <coughs> was a prodigy child. Uh, he started writing poems like Mozart. He started when he was. Th- three, four, five years old, and he, he wrote, wrote mature poems. Mm. And at the same time, he had terrible uh, living conditions. They were they lived in poverty. They were madness. His, his father and his mother went to an asylum. Others, or both, I can't remember. So he grew up with his aunties. Mm. There were suicides, these kind of things. Okay. And at the same time, he was a prodigy child. And he, um, was obviously, too advanced for school, so he stayed at home. And he started... Uh, suffering and and even hating the age in which he lived so it's very interesting um, that that the yearning for the past is nothing new lovecraft uh, being brought up in the early 20th century yearned for the 18th century you know he yearned for the time where there Mm. were no cars where there were only carriages and horses and and wigs and, and, and 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 he started yearning for the past already when he was very very small right and these poems is about that. Uh-huh. It's, it's about Lovecraft before he became the horror uh, fiction writer Lovecraft, where he, where he started using the nightmare as a as a proportional uh, and a proportional agent for his uh, images. Um, so this was in complete Greek inspired style with the rhymes on the same level as Coleridge, um, and it's about longing for the past. The fascinating thing was, to me was, the strong emotional thing was, how can a child actually yearn for other centuries? Oh. I, I could understand it for an, an, an erotic adult. We have such a yearning, right? Uh, After being uh, disappointed in, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, being forty or fifty, or disappointed with life, then they start yearning. But no, this is a f- uh, fourteen-year-old child. Even no, yeah, I
0: think he was eleven years old yeah, oh. when he wrote them. So, so he specifically longs for an earlier age, or just for some other age, or something other than the present.
1: Uh, oh, he, he longs back to Rome, to Greece. These this, this kind of specific ages. Yes, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he
1: yearns back to ages where we have an idea of. Of Perfection, I think. Right. I mean, in our minds, Greece and, and Rome are sort of, or at least at their, the high point of their developments, they are sort of um, intellectual paradises which we project on them. Hmm. H- how, how idyllic they were in reality, we don't know, but.
0: <laughs> There's also always a consensus in any given time. Yes. Um, so you write this violin concerto. Based on on impressions from from uh, Lovecraft, uh, but I'm wondering then uh, that that's the that's the literary input here. Mm. W- w- uh, which composers have influenced you in terms of your uh, technique, yes. the way you compose?
1: Well, obviously there is a mixing pot of composer, yeah. Yeah. Um, as with painters. I guess you, you have four, five, six, seven reference persons mm. which you which you feel related to. That mm. They can be different. Um, but obviously you have, I, I feel very attracted to uh, Russian music, Yeah. to French music. They're not the same. Uh, they have that in common. I, mean, I, I think about Tchaikovsky, for mm. example. I think about also Debussy. Um, Austrian music ha, ha, is very interesting in the terms that it, it's a mixture of of German and Russian and French traditions. so for example Mahler he um, masters a lot of things at the same time so he is an ideal as well mm. and um, he works with simplicity despite of his time it's not a very modern composer despite of what everybody says mm-hmm. um, so we have Tchaikovsky you have um, you have Debussy and you have in modern times also very interesting people uh, spiritual, metaphysical people like Orville Parts. uh In film music, you have a lot of good composers. Um, I traditionally prefer the classical ones because I come from the classical scene. Mm. So you know, characters like like John Williams and and um, and others in in, in that realm. Just oh, a also. <laughs> yes. Um, I have an ambivalent relation to trostakovich, okay. but uh, let's yeah. not use, yeah. waste time on that <laughs> okay but uh, um, so those are composers who um, who who write for orchestra and, mm. and, and and treats very skillfully the psychology of orchestral writing mm. and uh, the uniqueness of each um, color and technique but also the history of the technique and use that to, to create uh, amazing stuff so those would be my ideals
0: mm-hmm. Mm. Because uh, uh, quite a few of those you mentioned are, uh, at least very often, work with large orchestras. Mm. And I think that this is something that that comes in really in the 19th century, the the grand orchestra, like the romantic uh, era. Yes. Uh. Well, the
1: size of the orchestra actually expands over time Uh Uh, until the First World War, perhaps. Okay. Then it yeah. gradually d- declines because oh. of, of, of several things, of uh, certainly economic conditions.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Right. And so there, uh, we sort of slide into your uh, PhD mm. because there is a shift in the, well, uh, prior to the World War uh, One, especially, it becomes uh, obvious. Yes. What are you writing about there, or what you're investigating uh, into there? So the theme is, it's quite ambitious. Um,
1: It's about something called the Freudian death drive. Okay. It's a concept from Freudian psychoanalysis. And the change of aesthetical paradigms in Vienna before the First World War. So in Vienna, this time around 1908, 1910, 1911, there was a lot of stuff going on, and mm-hmm. it was a, a breaking point on several fields at the same time. And these breaking points defined an aesthetic or an approach to art in general, an approach to a lot of things, an approach to science also, that defined the rest of the century altogether, we could say. Um, and I feel that it hasn't been, a lot of things has been written about it, but it hasn't been thoroughly understood, mm-hmm. is my feeling. So... I felt that there is something lacking here to try to understand why all of a sudden there was this generation of people that got so radical and and tried to change everything 180 degrees. And in that material, which is very complex, uh, there's so much interesting things to be found because I think, I'm not an academic, I'm writing the PhD, but I'm not an academic. I think the choices, the aesthetic choices you make as an artist and as as a composer, they have historical relations. So if you choose a certain aesthetic, that aesthetic has a reason for existing, an historical reason, and you are obliged, I think, to try to understand as much as you can why that aesthetic exists Mm. before you start writing in it yourself. So if I would write music in the style of Schoenberg, which a lot of people do still today, um, not entirely understand why Schoenberg was so radical as he was, mm. it would be a problem, mm-hmm. ethically and, and even morally. And it would be a problem for me because it would mean that I'm doing something because it's it's good to do and not because I need to do it.
0: Right, right. right. Tell us a little bit about, about more about Freud and Yes. How, I mean, uh, uh, how can you say that he has influenced culture? or the aesthetic ideas, modern aesthetic ideas? Yes. How, the, how what, what is the relation there?
1: Well, a lot of relations. Well, first, uh, Freud is a part of a, a, a bigger movement called materialism, right, or science. And um, the scientific movement, which naturally expanded during 19th century because people got extremely skilled. It's related to technology. I mean, microscopes got bigger. People could see deeper into matter. They could see into space. Uh, technology allowed humans to actually create um, a field called science that could challenge everything else. Mm. It could challenge religion. It could challenge ideologies. It could challenge belief systems, mythology, images, and so on. Uh, So Freud is a part of that, and he's the psychological part of it. So what Freud basically, and his his, uh, flock of people did because there was a um, psychoanalytic society, which uh, worked in Vienna at the time. They, um, their goal was to try to redefine history. And I think it was um, a, a well-meant goal um, to break down illusions and to understand why people did behave as they have been behaving for 3,000 years, not so not to repeat their mistakes, probably. Mm-hmm. And and, um, the the way of of doing that was to understand every symbolic um, phenomenon or every mythic phenomenon or every religious phenomenon and human behavior in um, psychological contexts and to um, break things down to psychological objects. And I'm going to try to take some examples. Right, yeah. So what is a psychic complex, for example? So um, by theory, everything that happens, which is significant to humans over a long period of time, will become psychologically imprinted in our minds. So one easy example would be, for example, the fear of darkness, mm-hmm. right? So you, let's say you live in a village and... Of course, there is a barrier around the village because humans are weak. They need to protect themselves. What happens at night is that around the village, there is utter darkness. And in this darkness, theoretically, predators can jump at you or or even other humans. And so the darkness is dangerous, right? So after thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the darkness becomes associated with something dangerous, even if it isn't. So... If you have had children, I, I believe you have. Yeah. So I, you will have observed that from a certain age, uh, children start to be afraid of the, the darkness. It's not there from the first year, but it, it occurs slowly, slowly in the, in the second and third year of their lives when they start realizing, oh, there is something dark and that might be dangerous, but they have never experienced themselves any and concrete really, danger right. from the darkness. Right. It, is, it is an inherited... Um, thought pattern which becomes a complex so it has a horizon and we inherited it Mm. and now that's all right you can be afraid of the darkness but in the human mind things then get complex because in that fear of darkness which is not really anymore it's just a memory of something that happened a long time ago you can project a lot of things suddenly your dead grandmother might occur in the darkness suddenly a ghost Mm. or suddenly Uh, a a flow of water that threatens to crush you in your dream and all sorts of things. So so this this phenomenon, which was originally just uh, uh, the fear of being attacked in the darkness, becomes a a highly complex thing where you can project all sorts of things in the darkness, right? Right. And you can mix that with other fears that you might have and so on. And uh, coming back to um, the so-called death drive, which is a very interesting thing, of course, um, death is uh, one of the most um, usual things happening to living things. I mean, if we wouldn't die, then so high statistics. Um, yeah. Yes, statistically, um, things die and they, they are born again. So obviously, a death is an imminent part of of something imprinted in our minds, and and when um, when. This phenomenon rises up in the human mind and gets a complex, and it gets a lot of functions. So, uh, the fact that that there is death to Freud meant partly that there is a part of the human that actually wants to die. There is a will to die, and this would, what he called a, a pulsion of death is, is the uh, it's the death instinct. Or the mm-hmm. death drive, as you can also uh, translate it to. So it, it is the way through which an organism drives itself to death. And that's that's quite heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. And coming back to Romanticism and what, um, what Freud and his um, fellows actually meant by this, is that death was something... In in classical, in religious thinking, in mythical thinking, death was something that uh, God imposed upon you. And life was something that God gave you, right? So uh, in religion, of course, life and death has completely symbolic and and mythical um, meanings. Nobody speaks about a clinical death or if you speak about... A psychological complex, which is a death drive, which is just, just um, uh, uh, neurons uh, connecting in your brain, memory, it's materialistic, it's something concrete happening in your brain, mm-hmm. nothing to do with God not whatsoever. Um, um, th- suddenly, you question all mythic images. So, so instead of God letting you die, or as in the Romantic system where religion started to evaporate, uh, you had. Um, folk images of that, you know, dancing skeleton or, or all mm-hmm. sort of symbols that symbolize death. But it was not psychological death, right? So um, what he said that all of this is an illusion and it's all in your mind, right? And he did that with all things. Freud. Freud, yes. Deconstructed religion so and symbols and mythologies. That, that was their project. And I think it was well-meant. And it's very interesting because some of it is obviously true.
0: So was this... <clears throat> Was this, uh, well say, well-meant, so it could sound as they come with the attitude that this is all false or that they just want to understand why it is as it is. All both at the same time. Yeah, well. I guess. And how does this affect culture then, or composers?
1: Um, when you take um, myths and stories and beliefs away from people, when you actually tell people that everything you believed in and your ancestors believe in is just an illusion. Mm-hmm. You're taking identity away from people. And, and, and you do it well. Because Freud was one of the, the, the greatest writers, that has been logical writers. And, and he, he arguments so well that you can't actually prove him wrong mm-hmm. up till today. You can disagree but you can't prove him wrong. But at that time, and I don't think they were aware of that, um, the German middle class, who lived, the middle class slash bourgeoisie, who lived in Romanticism, who lived with the folk tales of Grimm, who lived with, with you know the Teutonic to- ideas of, 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 of some Norse and and partly in Protestantism also still, and, and they had the, their identity right, and and it's just like if you take if you sweep reality under the feet of of that whole culture, and. You would make a lot of people angry, right? Mm. So what I'm gonna, not going to take that too far, but what happened in the first and second World War is a consequence of that. Because what, what the Nazis actually did was they took the whole mythology, thing back look, they are taking the identity from us. Let's put it back and let's kill everyone else, right? Mm. And especially those who uh, try to argue that our mythology was an illusion. Mm-hmm. So so the the consequence of science and the counter reaction, which they obviously had not. Foreseen at all, which was the Second World War and uh, Mm. this this explosion in in pseudo-mythological thinking that the Nazis Mm. represented, um, had to happen, right? And um, in in all its tragedy. And in in this climate, in this radical climate, um, other things happened in art and politics. So this is the same period where where political uh, radicalism becomes eminent, Marxism, these kind of things, and in in art you have uh, you have expressionism and and, and all sorts of things happening at the same time at the same place in a relatively small group of people who they they're not they don't think similarly but they live in a in an environment that pushes them to completely change everything one hundred and eighty degrees around. Mm.
0: What happens when you strip people from myth? Mm-hmm. When you rationalize, so called rationalize it, and say this is just superstition, mm-hmm. then you take away the contact with the, you know, how the human being exists in the world. That Campbell is, is very concerned with that. Yes. that. Myth connects you to the world, Absolutely. lets you know where you are, as yes. it says. Yes. So, is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, the, 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 it's on they, several they, levels. Yeah.
1: It's on several levels. So, one of the basic motivators behind modernism was of course, to strip um, people of their illusions, right? right so so the the the, the famous um, upheaval against the aristocracy. I mean, it's the same thing that happened hundred years earlier just now it's the bourgeoisie and it's yeah. the proletarians yeah. that go against them instead of the of the farmers and so on but what 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 they wanted was to strip these people of their clothes, of their ornaments, of their nice language, of their jokes, of the way of thinking, of their everything. Everything that was connected to them. Their whole identity was to be stripped away. So that, that's the stripping away. So when you take away things, the, the myth, it, it's a, it, the, the mythology is a language, right? It's a language in which we can communicate because not only... Uh, does the myth has a, a historical connotation through which we can communicate because we both know about it? But it also speaks about the way the brain works because the mm. brain yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Speaks in mythic images, right? And it's a way of, it's a language. So it's a way of communicating yeah. So if you take that all away There is not much left, you know, it's like uh, the, um, the onion of, of Ibsen, right? he peel, yeah. Pergin peels the, 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 yeah. the, the, the layers and at the end yeah. the center there is nothing there
0: yeah, and th- this, so, is, this is also, uh, uh, this is perhaps not um, uh, part of your PhD, but I'm just thinking about experiments with, uh, you know, from earlier ages with children. When you don't give them reac- reaction, mm. they freak out. Yes, so if, if I you don't have that, I mean, I, I'm trying to make a connection then to taking away the myth. Mm. What what comforts you or, or, or just lets you know, well, where you are. Yes. You take that away, then you get, uh, you know, you get... Re- well,
1: I, I I won't say you get nothing because you 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 get the human you get the flesh and the bones and, and, and certain things here you know <laughs> right. it's like a, I, I often use this image like a stripping a cat of its fur yeah get the and, true cat uh, yes get the true <laughs> cat so a, a modernist a true modernist or a, a, a Freudian would would try to peel off the fur to see what's right. really inside right yeah. the, the problem is that the cat dies yeah. and but it, it is the true cat so the colors are gone and all cats are the same and so on. Um, and, and, and there is a, there is a, it's important to um, remember that there is a moral um, motivator behind it. You know, in history there has been these pairs of persons, like Wagner Nietzsche and Nietzsche, and Freud and Jung. And um, two generations of, of men who had um, who had a symbolic father-son relationship. So, so Wagner and Nietzsche w- was famous for that in in the sense that Nietzsche started out as a, a great admirer of Wagner, saw him as his philosophical father, and so on. And then he completely uh, took another way, and which is typ- which is sort of symbolic for every relation between the son and the father like at some point as a son you symbolically kill your father to find yourself and this is also very interesting about Jung and Freud who had a paradoxical relationship because Jung was the younger one and he definitely had the role of the son in front of Freud and Freud saw Jung which was Swiss as a as an excellent opportunity to um, to spread his idea about uh, psychoanalysis outside Austria. So that's why Freud was very interesting in maintaining a very good relation with Jung. And um, at the same time Jung saw Freud as his intellectual father. Mm. And At some point these two men completely separated pasts. And the reason is quite interesting. So Jung, despite of his younger age, um, wanted to integrate 19th century metaphysics into psychoanalysis. And that was diametrically different from that which Freud wanted to do because Freud wanted to kill illusions. For him, that was illusions. And not to forget that Jung was the son of a preacher. So he was raised metaphysically and he probably had something to defend from that angle as well. And it's funny because Jung represents the 19th century and Freud represents the, the 20th century. And at some point, Jung wrote a letter to Freud, said, you're, you're going to kill it all, you know. And, um, he said that. Yes, and, and, and Freud wrote back, uh, you, you know, but you are clinging to illusions that will kill us all as well. So, so they were excusing they were each other to, to basically ruining everything, right? And after that, they didn't spoke with each other. And um, so the interesting thing is, is that Jung uh, was forced into a, a very isolated, uh, even social state of a self-reflection after that happened, because he was off the radar for, for Freud and his friends, and he had to do uh, something of his own, which was very painful, and at some point, you know, there is this energy of, of the mythic 19th century German that transcends from through Wagner, through Siegfried, to this hero that will liberate the German people. And it goes on to Nazi Germany. And and Jung found himself captivated between those things. And, And the interesting thing is the Nazis did use the German myths of the 19th century to create their whole propaganda machine and whatever they did. And that they killed off all the rest or tried to. And what happened after the Second World War is that, of course, using myths for anything got very suspicious, mm. because because the German culture had used and misused the myths until this explosion, and there was no way back. But interestingly enough, mythic thinking remains in Hollywood, for example, it remains in popular culture, it remains in, in popular storytelling, which is really Greek storytelling, just in a more advanced form, or not. Um, So myths live on. It's just that we Europeans have no right to use them because we are in this uh, unfortunate tradition of of the explosion of Germanic myths. So the relationship between Jung and Freud is symbolic for for this. Hmm.
0: When you take away... What I was thinking about is is uh, the, the what i wrote, read in uh, in uh, Campbell when you take away the myth, you take away people's relation to the world around them, and you get this psychological loneliness yes yeah and you're talking about the the uh, second world war or the whole uh, slaughter as a consequence of sort of stripping getting down to the true nature of things well that's a defense mechanism so
1: uh, the aggressiveness that when you when you take people their their identity or their imagined or real identity away from them you're gonna make them very really angry so it's a consequence of that but uh, so it's an interesting question and I I think that's true what do you get actually when you take that away when you take your clothes away you sit there naked so do I um, clothes is a way of communicating, it's a way of showing me who you are, right? That's one way of communicating. And, and, and having a common language is one way of communicating. So if we would uh, speak different languages, we wouldn't be able to communicate. Mm. So the, the result would obviously be that we would both sink down in solitude. And that's what exactly what happens. So expressionism, or the way Schoenberg develops his character within that social context, is a path towards solitude, um, not only musically, but also personally. It, it's a way of going away from the, the classical audience because he had this concert and there were some failures and he said, nothing more of this. I'm going to take my group of people, I'm going to close those doors I and mean, we're going to go into the, uh, a room with ourselves and play our own music for ourselves and nobody else is going to listen. And, um, and this sinking into solitude uh, was uh, a really important part of of going into oneself, into, into the dream world, into subjectivism. It's really related to Freud's analysis of dreams. You know, it, It's your subjective reality that is the material for you. Mm-hmm. And might there be commu- uh, uh, common things between humans? No, he didn't really think so. Jung thought so. That's right. why he developed the archetypes uh, because he thought and with others that there was a, a, a human foundation that we can all draw energy from and communicate through. Um, so this sinking down into solitude, it's interesting in, in, in one way because um, it is a discovery. I mean, I'm uh, analyzing the work, work which is called Évarton, um and it's from 99. And um, in this work, for the first time in music history, um, he writes a whole piece without any repetition whatsoever. I'm going to come back to that. Why that is, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but but anyway, it's a story about a woman uh, in, in that that just fumbles through a forest in the nighttime, and she stumbles over a corpse. It might be her lover. She might have killed him herself. She don't know. She's in a nightmare. Yeah, right. So the subjective reality is to fall into the nightmare and see what happens there. And I think I'm actually a positive on behalf of Schoenberg, because I, I think it was sort of a heroic deed to try to to strip everything away and try to go into that realm of... of uh, it's like Alice in Wonderland. You you try to jump in the hole and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And if nothing happens, it's bad for you. And that might be have been the case with Schoenberg, but um, the, the project is to go into that extreme solitude, into the nightmare, and see what happens there. So going back to the... Uh, the so-called death drive, which is very interesting. So uh, in order to make a transition between psychoanalysis and music, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, how does certain psychological things express themselves? Mm -hmm. Um, So the death drive, for example, I don't know how much time we're going to use for this, but um, uh, Freud spoke about compulsive repetition as a sign that somebody is in connection with his own death drive. So for example... If you have been to war and you have a traumatic imprint, so the word trauma is very important. A traumatic imprint means that something has happened to you that made death imminent. Either you killed someone, someone was killed next to you, you were shot, or at a symbolic level. Um, for example, if um, you as a kid, you, you painted and you draw... And then you were passionate about that. So if one day, for example, your father came up to you and he said, you know, jan I'm going to speak to you now. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, you have no talent whatsoever. Mm. You know, this is nothing what you do. And he's going to make you discourse like that. And perhaps you're 12 years old, right? That's a trauma mm. because he is going to try to kill something in you, mm. right? And what's going to happen with that is that for weeks and months and years and probably the rest of the life, that episode with your father is gonna play again and again and again in your mind. It's gonna be in a mode of compulsive repetition until your brain understands why he behaved like that. Uh Um, Or or with other forms of therapy or strong drugs. So so that's the way of the brain to compulsively repeat uh, when in a state of trauma. And there is something, uh, other, uh, other things, very interesting going on in a state of trauma. For example, perception of time. So when you are in a traumatic state, and we see this with the so-called post-stress syndrome from people that have been in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, when you're in a traumatic state of mind, the past doesn't exist and the future neither because you're in such a state of pain that you only live in the present. And it's very interesting because these people actually uh, partly erase their own memories. They don't remember partly who they are, if you are the more you're traumatized, the less you remember who you are, who your parents are, what went on before this day, before this very moment and so on. So the state of trauma um, and death is very interconnected. Right? And so the perception of time, so going back to... So
0: There's a lost to, connection.
1: Yes. And now we can go on to narrative and the mm. construction of stories because...
0: Yeah, because how does this relate to actual composition? Well, example? it's
1: the other way around. It can't, you can't, construct anything with that. So I would argue that the period in which Schoenberg and Freud lived were traumatic at many, many points. The identity, even their own Jewish identity, was questioned. A lot of them converted to Catholicism because you had the anti-Semitism going on and violently going on.
2: Mm.
1: And you had the whole identity of the, of the German uh, people, if you can say that. And even the whole identity of European romanticism, which was questioned with, with Karl Marx, and so on and so forth, and Darwin, which questioned the whole Christianity and evolution. And, and this, this whole, So that must have been really traumatic, and that means that the, the time question uh, must have been imminent. So what, what happens in this work by Sternenberg, which is atonal, right? It's one of the first atonal works, but it's all the, the uh, first work where nothing whatsoever is repeated. Now, that's very interesting because if he would be connected to the death drive and, and compulsive repetition, mm. he would write music like Steve Reich, right? Like something that goes on and on and on and on um, But no, it, it's not. It's the opposite way around. So how can you explain that? And that's, that's when I started thinking, you know, symbolically. Music or literature that need repetition to create a structure. Yeah. Need, you need repetition to create a structure, to play with memory, to bring yeah. things back again, like a building. You know, this, this is the same pillars uh, on the left and the right side. So what if, if death is connected to repetition? And I, I, I can also come back to a phrase of Freud, which is really important. Um, he said that the death drive is the organism's will to return to a non-organic state. So it's a very radical phrase so it means that for him which is very in Schopenhauerian um, if, if, tradition if you may say so it, it sounds pessimistic but it's not necessarily that but it means that for him the goal of all life is to return to an inorganic state means to to be mineral again mm-hmm. right so what's more orderly than that if you were to be a mineral uh you molecules who just repeat themselves all over if you be a um, uh, it's, it would be much, much more simpler for you than to be a very complex human being. So what I'm, I'm telling myself is that if a repetition is connected to death, now that's very interesting because with repetitive music you get this feeling of meta- metaphysics, right? you, you get to, the, this feeling of being connected to something which is beyond our world. That's mm. the whole point with music. If, if not, it wouldn't be the point with it.
0: Mm. Because reading about Schoenberg, I mean, uh, talking about the twelve-tone technique, mm. uh, uh, according to what, to what I was uh, reading, he—if this was his words or the, the way it was described—at least it was a, a question of how this was a more democratic way of, of um, uh, 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 composing, because mm. no tone means more than any other tone. And it reminds me, and I'm trying to to connect it to painting, it reminds me of a story I I read uh, about Renoir, French Impressionist. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny story, but when you think about the implications, it changes character. Because he was standing in some apartment higher up, and he was painting a, a, a bridge, people crossing, you know. And he had his brother walk on the bridge, and stop people and ask them questions, at what time it was or whatever, so that he could make them stop a little bit so the Renoir could stand right. and paint them. Early conspiracy roster. Well, uh, the point is that this sounds, you know, it's a funny story, but it it is also an illustration of how uh, the Kantian, the, the Immanuel Kant, uh, 18th century, the Kantian aesthetical indifference is played out. Mm. It doesn't, of course, say that, that well, Renoir read Kant and therefore he wanted to illustrate this yes. philosophy. Yes. But what you're talking about, deconstructing old prejudices, yes. is placed very well into the hands of a lot of German, uh, uh, well, you could say romantic philosophy. Yes. And, and uh, I'm also thinking about how Schoenberg viewed the role of the composer. Apparently he, sa- he said, what was the quote? Uh, the genius learns from himself the talent learns from others yes which is a lower form mm, mm, and that is a purely mm. ideological or philosophical of course, principle of course which is co- of course uh, you know well o- all that is it's
1: to me is a sort of propaganda schoenberg was always uh, obviously very um very intelligent and he was one of, like much, much like picasso he was one of the first composers that really learned to himself write himself into history mm-hmm. so he wrote texts as well about this music, why am I doing this, the theory behind it, right, and my place uh, in history mm-hmm. and so on. So, uh, composers before they didn't actually do that, except Wagner, he had this tendency as well to write himself into his, he was as intelligent as, as being able to do that. Um, but to understand Schoenberg's relation to the past is more like if you take a vase and you smash it to pieces on the floor, because that's modernism, but you try to find out what's the real vase, right, so you have to destroy it first. Just like the children, um, uh, up to two years, they they smash objects to understand objects. They're not doing it uh, because they're evil, little children. It's because their brain uh, tries to understand what they actually have in front of them. So um, um, expressionism expressionism with historical material is a little bit the same thing. So you take the smashed waste and then you glue it back together again, in the way you want and the perhaps truer way so now it's a truer vase. It's a broken vase with a lot of scars, but that's true vase. And you will find um, uh, reminiscences of uh, historical material, of course, but it's, it's broken small pieces. So that's what you can find in Schoenberg Actually, um, it, it's, if, if you take an isolated cell, yeah, that that might be a piece of Brahms, you know, but it, mm. it's going to be like this small, just like a broken vase. Um, and um, Take film music, for example, what happens when, you, when, when classically you use uh, dissonant music, or atonal music, or Schoenberg-like music in film music. For example, all horror films, they use almost only atonal music to express the tension that goes on. But the more you're, 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 you're afraid of your life to have the, the chains so, chop off your head and so on, the music will be dissonant because that will, that will describe your inner tense state and it's not going to be resolved in any consonants. Yeah. So that's also what we have to give Schoenberg credit for, to having invented the horror music, because otherwise nobody would have dared perhaps do that. And it is an expression of, of, of human tension. So in that situation of, of war and, and, and sexual uh, lived sexual oppression, and so, that's why tension and dissonance go so uh, close together. Mm-hmm.
0: So this, so, this is this is basically what you at least in painting call simultaneous contrast. If we have dissonance, then whatever comes after has the um, all more strong effect. Uh, yeah, uh, of course. I guess it's in that sense it, it works in the same way as as uh, Ibsen would use uh, humor to. As a simultaneous contrast to make the tragedy... To relieve
1: uh, attention, yes, yes, I would say so. Uh, but also
0: also in the, in the simultaneous contrast, yes. that, that tragedy becomes even more tragic because yes. of this this uh, humor, of in this case, of course. or dissonance. Of course,
1: and that's the, yeah. the thankful situation of creating a drama with music. You can really play around with these kind of things. But you need mm. dissonance, of yeah. course. But you need to, um, to uh, be very conscious about the effect of the dissonance because it that has... A, a tensifying effect on you, mm. right? It's acoustics. It's not like a painting or a book that you can just uh, put together. The music is going to be all around. It's going to be wrapped around you and it's going to make you tense whether you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the music has a very strong um, manipulative potential in this regard. Of course, if you create only dissonant music, you will have a, a much stronger physical reaction than if you would write music that goes between consonants and dissonance like all types of music from the beginning of time Mm. up to uh, expressionism.
0: so when we're talking about schoenberg and what he makes his uh, revolution then against we can define it as a romantic tradition Uh, of course with schoenberg romanticism didn't die didn't end what happened to it
1: Well, I think in general, you could say that um, through what happened in Vienna, and it's funny because it's always this geographical area in this time. Vienna was really important. So a lot of was going on. There was Brahms. There was this uh, wonderful composer, unrecognized composer called Sibliński, which taught composition um, to Schoenberg was actually his only teacher because Schoenberg was um, mostly self-taught as a composer. was really? Bach. But, um, as a digression, but uh, Korngold, Eric and Korngold, which is a relatively unknown composer, but yeah. but very good one as well, was also a student of Sebulinski. Now, this composer, Korngold, went to Hollywood. It was a Jew, flew like everyone else, but, but early, and... Um, defined what we today know as Hollywood music which is in really, its yeah. ground character orchestral and romantic so uh, one can say that European romanticism or, or the inheritance divided into two uh, rivers mm-hmm. and one of the rivers stayed in Europe and changed totally and one of the rivers went on to America, became Hollywood and um, and sort of made sure that romanticism and sentimentality and crafts that went with that lived on. And that continues until our days, because what happens in Hollywood in the film industry that uses um, descriptive programmatic orchestral music as a sort of a foundation to, to, very operatic to to, to illustrate the the drama, is maintained up to our day and is also uh, have been a guarantee that um, a lot of classical techniques actually has not been forgotten because classical orchestration, um, uh, tonality, um, uh, drama, all these kind of things have been living on in Hollywood uh, and and well been living on. I mean, it is developing as well, but um, one can say that, that that whole culture is sort of the main branch of romanticism that has continued to live on. Now, there are a lot of interesting things to be noted about that. Um, First is the the crafts, which is strictly important uh, while writing film music. You can't do errors, neither as a musician nor as a composer. Mm. You have to be very, very good at what you're doing. There's no room for for rubbish. (laughs) And um, when you're working on a film... You're not by yourself, you're working in a collective. You're, um, you're working with other people to create one piece of art. It's not your piece of art, it's the piece of art of, of several persons. Which means that you as a composer, and we have to go back to really ancient times to find parallels to this, you as a composer um, don't have the final words about your music. The director has the final word about your music and the producer has the final word about your music, what you actually are going to do yeah. and how you're going to do it. And that does something to you as an artist because you are not entirely your own master. You're going to relate to others. And that means that your ego as an artist is going to have to go down. There are a lot of things that you might want to do, which is fantastic musically, which Korngold did a lot, but which has become less and less mm. um, in history of film because um composers are more and more um, in, obliged to follow strictly the, the collective principles of, of, of creating a drama without putting his ego in front at all. Mm. For example, Leonard Bernstein, he wrote film music and he was such a great composer so he, he, he put in a lot of stuff and and, and, and the music is so rich that it, it takes the, the attention away often from the from the film. So he wasn't, he wasn't a good film composer, but he was so famous and so powerful that nobody said anything, right? And, and, and uh, music has to be a part of a, whole, a totality in film. That's very interesting. So if you take a composer, a great composer like Johnny Williams, for example, and my theory is that uh, a film music is only as great as the taste of the director right. because there is very few examples of great film musics that has not been done in cooperation with great directors. Right. And the taste of the director and his intellectual level will decide how good the the film and the film music eventually will be. So if you are lucky, like say if you're John Williams and you are already very skilled and you have the luck to meet somebody called Steven Spielberg, which is also very skilled, which you can like or dislike, but it's very skilled. And these two people come together and you will have a, a, pretty good results mm. and now it's interesting because taking John Williams which I admire a lot which I think is, a, is, a, is really a, a genius and a good composer um, he has also written a lot of classical music like concert music mm. violin concertos and concertos for a lot of instruments and, and everything and that's very skilled too but that music is an example of when he has Uh, the possibility to realize something without somebody being behind him and telling him what to do. So he has full freedom. So that music sounds pretty similar to Alban Berg or early, actually early 20th century music. So Uh sort of see me out out a lot. Very well done. It's actually better than Alban Berg. And if you compare his classical music in my view, personal view to his film music, I find his film music better. (laughs) And what does, does that tell you? It tells you that your as and composer might be a problem sometimes, or sometimes right. when, peop- we, when people when good people uh, tell you to do something which you might don't like to do, it might be better for you to do that. and that that sort of, that sort of raises a question, doesn't it?
0: Well then you get back, get to the, the opposition that I see between originality and quality. hmm. And speaking of the, the sort of the, the again, the, the philosophical uh, foundation for these different cultures, I remember uh, seeing um, uh, something by Hans Zimmer, who's known for, for Batman music and other things. And one thing is the, is the work, working ethic. Uh, and I don't remember the exact quote, but he basically just throws uh, um, inspiration out the window because you're going to make that music in two or three weeks and it mm. better be finished. Um, and the other thing which he uh, which says uh, relates to the point of how music can tell a story. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen this, uh, this uh, master class uh, uh, videos. You can, you, can, you can do a course with, with Zimmer. And it says, music is a question and an answer. So it reminds me of also what, what um, actually the, 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 uh, the um, uh, Donda cartoonist Don Rosa talks mm-hmm. about. He doesn't really enjoy drawing. He wants to tell a story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. That's the that's the focal yes. focal yes. point yes. here. Yes.
1: So it's interesting you speak about, um, or if we mention Hans Zimmer, right? That's another typology of film composers. We mm. have uh, Johnny Williams, which is in the in the tradition of Max Steiner, of uh, of Erich Wolfgang Kogengold That's the tradition of classical composers. And mm. do you have also the typology of a composer like Hans Zimmer, who works collectively? So this is a. This is a composer, much like Michelangelo, um, which, which draws up a sketch and, and works with assistants to complete um, the mission, right? and he has many assistants, and, and it's, it's sort of a, a small industry, and, and it's very interesting when you think about ego, so when you work with a director, obviously your ego as an artist is under pressure, and it's good for you, perhaps. Um, and being in a collective, it's more or less the same phenomenon. So what, what is yours or what is not yours? So having a lot of assistants like Hans Zimmer is interesting. They all have to, to lower their e- individual egos to m- make something that is not only serving the film, but it's o- also in the style of Hans Zimmer. Right. right? So it, it's a double ego uh, suppression. And uh, that might be interesting for the music, that might make fantastic results, I don't know, because nobody really knows who was made what, that's not clear. Um, But that's a typology of work that might be legitimate as any other typology of works, but it really reminds of, of, of if you perhaps could emphasize, but I, I'm thinking of you know these old Renaissance masters who who, who draw the the the, the cathedral um, ceiling and and make their assistants yeah. go up on the ladders and actually yeah. actually fulfill the painting, right?
0: Yeah, yeah well, this is now. I mean, like with Rubens, you could pay according to how much he would actually paint on the canvas, and I'm thinking also of um, what's his name, uh, more or less contemporaneous he italian painter Anyway, the point is he was hailed because he was able to imitate different painters styles Mm. that was a quality of course yeah so and then you're you're talking about the respect for the craft Mm. and knowledge of the craft that's the focal point not that i express myself so it's a in that sense a really unromantic work ethic at the same time as the result you could say is romantic in the sense that it it really grips you it really creates great drama
1: well the, the result is, is um, paramount yeah in these things yeah. and um speaking about drama you, you spoke previously about how to tell a story right now in music that's not so simple so the story we tell actually all music musics tells a story more or less i would say from the time of classicism of mozart and haydn before that it gets trickier because the music is related to the church and you are really in, in the service, you are in really a, a, a spiritual exercise. But I would say from the time of classicism, from Mozart, from Haydn, music is telling is sort of a story, but your personal story, but it is a, an emotional story. So it's not not necessarily um, like Richard Strauss in, in Tileugenspiegel, Til which is a, a, a a a very representative uh, work for something we call mickey mousing it's when music illustrates something perfectly all right so we call it mickey mousing (laughs) because in hollywood when 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 mickey raises his army the 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 trumpets go like yeah right and (laughs) then the strings go (laughs) right so that's illustrate movement of course that's that's the the basic um method of of illustrating a story right Mm. and so that can be done of course but the really interesting thing with music is to uh, make a drama out of human emotions and to have defined things that you chain and put together, and with tension and release, tension and release, you get that effect. It's very d- difficult to describe how exactly I do, but you can use words like mystery, anxiety, um, like tragedy. Actually, it's, it's an emotion in music, I think. Um, love, even if it's it's it's, it's cliche, but. Yeah, you can express that as well. Like, like these sort of emotions, you can try to express them at least, and um, that will be the connection point. That that will be the, the 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 parameters of the drama that you will create. The music it, it, it's purely emotional, really. Mm.
0: So this brings us also then to the point of uh, catharsis, as mentioned in the very beginning here. Mm. How does music? affect catharsis
1: you know that's very interesting because i was supposed to say now that um, with atonal music or with dissonant music catharsis isn't possible why whereas it should be possible what is catharsis it, it's about the mirror right it's about the drama you see in front of you which is drama in itself, and thus it is relieved that's the principle of catharsis but if in dissonant music the nightmare is put in front of you, mm. and obviously you have nightmares as well, and you're confronted with it, and you're not relieved. Re- released, you mean? You're No, relieved uh, oh, oh, okay. uh, psychologically, right, right, okay. whereas you should be, because it's a re- obviously a reflection of your, your nightmare. We all we all know what suffering is, we all have had nightmares, we all have been down on the ground and so forth. Yeah. We, we, sh- we should feel catharsis when somebody is, is really confronting you with the, the, the darkest tensions yeah. of your being. Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, it doesn't seem to happen. And uh, um, catharsis in music for me, or or, or the the best music that functions as a relief, is something that has nothing to do with me at all. Like to think of the music of Bach or or Palestrina or something that just transports you to other worlds and and it relieves you. But does it have anything to do with you psychologically? So I was thinking, Isn't it the other way around? Like that music is catharsis when it's not, as in the post-drama, I don't know. But there's something strange going on there because I was thinking in the train on the way here, I was thinking that why isn't the music of Schoenberg working as a relief? Actually, when you go out of the concert, you feel even worse than you went in. (laughs) Most people. Some people don't. Mm. And that's why the music, is exist. Why some people don't? That's a very interesting question. Perhaps they are more tense than others, I can't say. But uh, most people will feel worse coming out of the concert hall as when they went into the concert hall. So it's definitely not catharsis. Mm. But it should have been, theoretically. Mm. Well, that's a mystery.
0: That's the interesting thing. A lot of you know, what I call contemporary figurative painting, the people are just sitting there sort of half depressed or maybe not even depressed. You don't know why because nothing's happening. There's no story telling why they mm-hmm. are as they are. Mm-hmm. And that to me is much more depressing than, for example, if you see... Uh, um, well, you can you can have the, the executions by, by Goya. 3rd of May. Yes. This is really... You know, you could say that this is depressing. A painful image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. But that... Is not depressing. Yes. It's much more depressing because yes. then there's, there's a yes. causality there yes. for the suffering. When the suffering is just non-causal, yes, then okay. everything is suffering. So
1: I have an idea. It must be about storytelling then. Because um, in abstract art or in abstract music, storytelling is very difficult mm. because you don't repeat anything, because uh, it's very complex. It's too, it's too complex for the, for, for the cognition to actually make sense out of and so on. So you don't actually tell a story or you don't want to tell a story because that's reactionary anyway. And so can you experience catharsis without a story being told or perhaps not? So I I believe that the basics of catharsis in Aristotelian philosophy is is the drama, is the tragedy. Hmm. And that's definitely a story that has been told, but that's a story people aren't crying all the time. They cry at certain points in the drama. It's a up to it. So if you don't take people with you right. or in the build-up and, and make them a part of the story with identification and all the things that that implies then catharsis could not happen but there is a strange thing going on in music because we do have the sense of relief listening to music that is not a reflection of anything negative within ourselves right so when you when you when what you examples? hear for example a, a choir work of palestrina which is perfectly harmonious and, and bright and, and just yeah. uplifting that's not a that's not an image of of anything problematic going on within you but you still feel relieved after hearing it yeah. isn't that strange
2: yeah
0: okay so here's a story for you is this representative i don't know if you know the um, i guess he's uh, english um carl jenkins composer mm-hmm. <coughs> i listened on the radio and uh, they played his millennium symphony and after the the it's tonal and after the the performance the journalists went around to ask the musicians what they thought and they said oh it's wonderful oh it's great and so and she concludes the 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 clip by saying but what they really meant we will never know so second story in the same radio program they're talking about the the performance of film music and they are adamant about the drama of it the pathos of it it's so wonderful you're sitting there and being gripped and there's no no border between between you and what you listen to and that struck me as the importance of ideology here the major problem, quote-unquote, for you, I presume, is that you work within what is considered art, but you're working with something that is supposed to be, uh, at least by many critics or, or, or academics, supposed to be uh, something we, we put behind us.
1: Or it's supposed to be popular culture. So where, yeah. where I find the, my axis of work is actually on that very small line between seriousness and, and yeah. popular culture, which is is right. uh, very very subtle actually because right. uh, in popular culture it, uh, people are extremely relieved if you, if you take any pop song it's like nobody's asking themselves whether it's really original where uh, where is this bass drum is taken from there, where is this melody has been heard ten thousand times before there's no no, uh, no problems with kitsch or, or or exaggerations and so forth so so it's a, it's a relief actually. In, in pop culture but at the same time you have commercialism so so they are limited with a uh, with many many problems as well so uh, to me the interesting line was to try to walk the path between those two worlds mm. and that's what i'm trying to do and it is um it, it, it sort of saves me as well because if i had a critic in front of me like that i said yeah but you know i am into popular culture so and that's how it works mm-hmm. So basically, the base, the foundations of criticism. Because I'm not in front of that person. I'm not pretending to um, to relate myself to serial uh, compositions of the '50s and '60s. That's not my intention at all. And it isn't really.
0: So um, am I understanding you correctly that there is an optimism in the sort of anarchy? of today with the possibility or there's i don't know you probably couldn't say crumbling of the institutions but, yes. but at least you l- can say that okay yeah right yes um that you see that as a positive thing or or, or at least as well, something where, where there's opportunities
1: yes because i have that character i i also respect that a lot of people are anxious yeah. about what's going on because yeah. they have had their life foundations built on that right if it's a true foundation or not it doesn't matter but, but a lot of people have built their lives on that yeah. and seeing those institutions crumble which they do publishing houses in classical music is one example they, they technically go broke one or, one after the other the big ones right. that have been around for hundreds of years yeah. um, and uh, and I have a lot of empathy with that but my character is is more that of um, I, I always like the god Loki you
0: know I try to, <laughs> that tried to well, you know, he wasn't a god. He was actually a, a stranger in their company. Uh, was he now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You all? Yeah. I guess we're all strangers, though.
1: Yeah. But uh, what Loki is always doing is that he he takes the, the, the thing, and he, he sort of likes chaos, and then he makes something out of it. It's not entirely bad. Yeah. It's, it's good and no, no, bad no, no. at the same time, as yeah. all humans. Yeah. And um, I, identif- I identify more with that. Like, okay, so now it's chaos, which it yeah. truly is. And I see possibilities. Right.
0: So uh thank God right <laughs> <laughs> right so are there any is there anything specifically that you would like to have uh, to see happen i mean what we well, I mean, was speaking about the, the the your visions for the yes. future yes what would you like to see happen
1: oh I would like to see i would like to see a lot of things and it's not necessarily on my behalf because i, I I really feel a belonging to uh, humankind, uh, none of us are isolated beings, even if expression isn't told or so, um, and I see so many talented people out there, you know, young musicians, hopeful musicians, and they come in with this amazing energy and skill, and the, and the system will, event, will, you know, push them down little by little by little, by little and, and they mm. will end up like, yeah. you know, with, with their car and their family and their two, uh, two children and, and, and no energy. And, and at four o'clock in the evening, it's, it's finished. You know, in the Vienna, Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, which you spoke about, which I know very much because I've been in Vienna for eight years. It's a fantastic orchestra. But these people, they don't even bring their instruments home. They just put it down mm. next to the chair and then they go home. Let the instrument be. That's something for here, for work, mm. you know like technocrats even if they're brilliant they work like technocrats and they have the con- tr- working contracts as technocrats as well right, yeah. and I would wish that to change because there are so many there's so much and there's so many hopeful people that you can use you can you can you can create orchestras and new things of doing things and and use that human resource which is not well used today at all and I'm positive about the internet it opens possibilities some people have done it already to create small formations and, and put a lot of energy in it, and, and, and also find our relation. Everything is interconnected, you know. It's about politics. It's about how the geopolitical situation will develop in the future. What's Europe gonna be like, you know? It can go in all sorts of directions, right? And we are, as artists, must relate to that in some way or another. Maybe we have to flee the continent as well. We don't know, for some reason, or go somewhere else. Like in in Russia or in America or South America, we don't know that yet. So obviously we have to relate ourselves to everything that will happen in the next next decades. And I think that's pretty exciting, actually. Mm -hmm. We need to take a stand. So what kind of stand, that's that's your deal. But uh, please don't say that the art should not take one.
0: Martin Romberg, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank
1: you so much. My pleasure.